Now we're turning to uh, Romans 6 again, and uh, we're going to look at verses 20, 21, and 22. Romans 6, verse 20. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness. And the result is eternal life. So what is helpful in these uh, last final words then of Romans 6 is the fact that he summarizes what he's been saying. He just repeats it and repeats it and lays it on us so that we'll really grasp it because it's so uh, very important. Um, He's talking about ordinary people, ordinary housewives and ordinary teenagers and ordinary scientists and ordinary Authors and composers and artists, ordinary members of the royal family, ordinary millionaires. He tells us some things that are true about every single ordinary person in Aberystwyth. And what's true for all of us then? So let's divide it up into what was true and what is true. What was true. Firstly, about all men and women, without exception. Three things, they're all slaves to sin. That's his exact sentence, isn't it? Five words, one syllable each. You were slaves to sin. Verse 20. You actually are doing what you, you never would have chosen to do if uh, you were being honest. Our teacher asked our class one day what we wanted to be when we grew up. One said a banker, other said a pilot, a millionaire, a football player. Few attained those ambitions. When the teacher asked me, I had an answer prepared. Um, I said, a personnel manager. <laughs> it sounds so highfalutin, doesn't it? And the reason for that was we had a lodger living with us who worked in Hoover's in Merthyr, and he was a personnel manager. And I liked him very much. And I thought, oh, that sounds a good job. I didn't become that any more than they became millionaires or football players. None of us answered a slave. But that is exactly what everyone in that class and everyone in that school became. Now, does that make you feel angry? I am insisting that the ordinary status of everybody in Aberystwyth is servitude. That's what you have become because of your estrangement from God. You're in a state of bondage to sin. You're doing what sin tells you to do. Please yourself, sin says. Never think of God as your creator. Never Wonder how God wants you to live. What choices God wants you to take. Sin says live apart from God's son. Apart from God's will. Apart from God's law. Apart from God's book. Apart from God's day or God's son. Or God's spirit. Without any regard for those things. And you are doing. 
exactly what sin tells you to do. Freedom, as far as you're concerned, is doing your own thing. Fulfilling your own desires and singing, then in the background, I did it my way. Well, that's not real freedom. That's a life of servitude, of the most dire kind, of the most real kind. You are slaves to your own selfish desires. There are some people, and we recognize that their lives developed into an awful kind of slavery. There was a very great football player named Paul Gascoigne, and he became a slave to alcohol. And he lost his athletic skill and his health and his marriage and his money because he was a slave to that sin. He had enormous talent and potential. Another such soccer player was George Best in bondage to his desires, utterly self-destructive even when he paid for a new kidney. Such men initially had the money to follow all their desires and addictions, but that did not make them free men. They were prisoners to their addictions. You consider a couple of the most famous Welshmen of of our generation, Dylan Thomas and uh, Richard Burton. How brilliant they were. What gifts. What a wonderful voice Richard Burton had. What a presence. How charismatic fame, influence, women. They had everything but freedom. They could have had such joy in life, but they threw life away because of addiction to alcohol. How would we describe that kind of life? Out of control. That's the phrase that Paul uses here in in verse 20. Uh, They weren't controlled by the conscience of our age, which is a very broad conscience. But it still says, uh, giving yourself to, to drink is such a waste of a life. It ruins everything. Freedom from the control of what is right. And what are the benefits? What benefit do you get from being a slave to alcohol or to gambling or to nicotine? or pornography, or drugs? What are the benefits for you and for your loved ones? Paul insists that we ask this question. Here it is, verse 21. What benefit did you reap at that time? What can you say? Nothing at all. You got more sick. You got more lung disease. You got more liver disease. You got more poverty, more headaches, more regrets. More broken relationships, less satisfaction, less peace. Am I scaremongering? Isn't that right? That person is enslaved, you say. You say, but but not me. But Paul says, yes, you, though not to alcohol, but to something else. A slave to living apart from God. A slave to ignoring Jesus Christ. You are a slave to self and to unbelief. You can hide your, your slavery in a way that Paul Gascoigne couldn't and George Best couldn't. But you are a slave 
to sin with a capital S, and the symptoms are your slavery to television, your slavery to gambling, your slavery to pornography, to greed, to unbelief, to boring Sundays, to keeping God out of your life. It can be any number of sins. And there are the symptoms that I've mentioned, and there are many more, that show that you are really, you are a slave to sin. Sin is in charge of your life. And the whole population, Aberystwyth is a town of slaves, Wales is a principality of slaves. And all of them are thinking that they are really, they are really free. And that they are locked into patterns of thought and attitudes and judgments that they keep and they nourish week by week. And just as long as they can do that, whatever they want to be and whatever they do, uh, then they think they're, they're experiencing liberty. But they are captives to the things they serve. I can give you some tests. If you prefer anything above God, then you are a slave to sin. If you don't live better by the troubles that God brings into your life, then you're under the dominion of sin. If you feel that the law of God is an oppressive law, you're a slave of sin. If you're horrifically opposed to the blessed offers of the gospel, that Jesus Christ can become your Lord and your Savior, your shepherd, your teacher, your best friend, and if you keep that at arm's length, you are a servant of sin, and you need deliverance from it. True freedom is, is found outside ourselves. It's not a question of going in and in. But it's to know the power of love and the grace of God delivering us and elevating us and enriching us and liberating us. And alas, this is what men and women give up. You're a slave to sin without Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ once said, when the Son makes you free, you are free indeed. Jesus Christ once said, Anyone who commits a sin is a slave of sin. And here are men and women driving around in their big cars, barely making it from one petrol station to another, sipping designer water that costs more than petrol, talking on our phones to one another about the recession and how much we are suffering, and we are showing that we are really slaves. We become a nation of whingers and whiners, We are addicted to the things that we have. If a little bit is taken from us, or if we have to wait for something, we go berserk. You don't have to be addicted to drugs or addicted to to alcohol to know you're a slave. It's what you are serving in your life. And this great, loving, living God who's blessed you in so many ways, you're not serving him and you're a slave to other things. The second thing, they are all ashamed of how they've lived, Paul says. The things you are now ashamed of, verse 21. 
there's an Auschwitz guard who's been hunted down and he's now in his late 80s and um, he's on trial in Germany and he says he's deeply ashamed of how he behaved in the 1940s. Well, it would have more reality about it if he had gone in the 1940s or 50s or 60s or he had gone and that he had acknowledged who he was and what he had done and cast himself on the mercy of the law. That would be more real, wouldn't it? Here are people in the town who are realizing that they're not truly free. But they don't go to church and they don't read the Bible and they don't pray. And they discover they are not free from shame. That they can toss and turn at two o'clock in the morning and God calls them to um, his presence to his judgment and God looks at them and evaluates their lives and they sigh and they groan and every fallen son of Adam knows shame since our first parents defied God and then they went and hid behind the bushes and they made aprons of leaves and they hid themselves in their shame from the living God. The difference between guilt and shame is this. Guilt is when I acknowledge I've done something wrong. Shame is when I acknowledge that I, myself, am wrong. There's something wrong with me. There's a feeling of unworthiness and regret. And Adam's reaction is typical. He, he hid himself from God. You know, a child will put his hand to his face, to her face, when she's ashamed of what she's done. The Apostle Peter warming his hands one night, all alone, no other Christians around, and challenged because of his accent that he must be from the same part of Galilee as uh, the man that they've just arrested, Jesus. And Peter, with strong words, denies that he has anything to do with him and repeats it and even swears at the person who is innocently saying, aren't you belonging to him? And then Jesus looks at him and he's overcome with shame and he weeps bitterly. And Judas, who betrayed him and betrayed him with a kiss, Judas then He, uh, three days later, when they've done their worst to Jesus, he's overcome with what he's done. And he throws the money at their feet and he kills himself. It's a terrible state of affairs when men no longer know how to blush. When they've lost a sense of shame. King David, oh, how... A sense of shame fell upon him. Have mercy upon me, O Lord, according to thy tender mercies and thine unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash me from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. I know my transgressions, my sins are ever before me. Slaves of sin. Ashamed of our sin, 
And thirdly, the result of such lives is death. Verse 21, these things result in death. And that's your future. You defy God and there are fearful consequences. You serve sin and the wages you get are destruction. We live in a moral universe and uh, it's overruled by the law of God. Your conscience bears witness to your life. You know the things you do are displeasing to him and unhelpful to other people. You sow a wind of, uh, of defiance and you reap a whirlwind of destruction. You sin and you answer. There's sowing, sowing, sowing and always there is the harvest. There's never just the sowing. There's the problem of what you're going to reap. There's the problem of when God sends in the bill. There's an account to be rendered. The wages of sin is death for a generation that defies the law of God and the being and the love of God. There is the solemnity of physical death, of breathing one's last. You know, a new film has come out this uh, past week that's been made by Woody Allen and there's this preoccupation he has with death and he is interviewed and he says um, uh, how aware of of his mortality he is he says um, it's like the poem of W.H. Auden like the sound of distant thunder at a funeral I got that wrong. Like the sound of distant thunder at a picnic. That's what death is like. The sound of it, the awareness of it coming nearer and nearer. So here are the three things, he says, that uh, are the characteristics then of, uh, of all ordinary people. They are slaves of sin. That's the first thing. And then uh, he says... Uh, the second thing about it that uh, it is um, it leads to shame and thirdly that it brings death and then secondly he says here what is true for everyone who is delivered and that's the great reality the Christian privilege the old unbelieving unregenerate person you used to be then dies and you are now united to Jesus Christ in his Life and death and resurrection and ascension and he lives in you. And uh, what God has done to establish you as a new people. New people not because you always have heightened feelings. And because you have an inner witness that's saying to you you're a new person. But because of what God has said in his word. Of how he has wed you to Jesus Christ forever. And as a result of this, several things have happened to you. Firstly, he has set you free from sin. And uh, he says this in the simplest language, in verse 22, you have been set free from sin. Now you understand that he's not saying we've been set free from the attacks of sin, or the presence of sin, or the temptations of sin. We haven't been set free from sinning, but we've been set free from 
the dominion and the lordship of sin over our lives so that it's curt demands and it's insinuating temptations are no longer inevitably answered by agreement on the part of God's people. That we do not go on ignoring God and we do not go on doing things in sin's way. That has ended for every Christian. We are free to say no when sin says to us, uh, don't listen to the preacher. When sin says, ignore Jesus Christ. And so here's this little Christian boy and this little Christian girl, and they are so pressurized to being in with their friends, to go with them and stick with them and behave in the way that the gang expects them to behave. And all that is now over. And the business of experiencing subsequent shame and fearing the judgment of death, it's all over. It's unnecessary to a believer. There's nothing inevitable then that when uh, temptations come to us this next week, we will inevitably give in and do what the temptation says. When Joseph was tempted by Potiphar's wife, there was a new force. There was a new relationship that he had with God. And that made him a strong man. And it made him a wise man. And it made him a good man. He didn't say, well, why not? She wants to, and I want to. And it can't be wrong if it feels so right. He had been set free from the inevitable decline when temptation comes of giving in. And then the awful consequences of that sin. Now, we may fall like true believers fell like Lot and Noah and Abram and David and Peter and Paul fell. Uh, We may not fall as spectacularly as some of them fell, but there will be the tragedy of sin in a believer's life. And uh, there will be the silly choices that we make. But Christians are not conditioned to fall. Christians are not victims of temptations that are too great for us. There is always the possibility of saying no. There is always when we are hemmed in and it seems all the choices before us are bad choices, God always provides a good way, a right way, a a true way of deliverance from that temptation. And he gives us strength to do what is costly We are fools and slow of heart to uh, ignore the provision and the promises and the grace of God that helps us when we are alone. Then, ah, there's one who says, I'll never leave you. I'll be there for you. I'll be there loving you and helping you at that time. Uh, There's a boy and uh, he's learning to ride a bike. And he's learned to balance on the two wheels and to pedal down the street. And he's doing very well. But so far, the only way he has found out how to stop is to put his foot on the ground as he's riding along or to turn the bike into a bush or into a wall or the curb or the garage door. And his father's watching him and his father says to him, you know, you don't have to run into the curb in order to stop. 
There's another way provision has been made by the people who made this bicycle in order for you to stop. That lever there on that handle, you pull it up, and there's a lever on the other handle, and you pull it up, and the bike will slow down and stop. And the boy looks at his father open-eyed, and he says, I'm really glad to know, then, that there's another way to stop than this way. And I hope he wasn't being sarcastic. But it's no good for him knowing that there's a way to stop without actually putting pressure on the brakes and holding on to them and pulling them up to stop the disaster that riding a bike in traffic can bring. It's like this in the Christian life. Everyone wants to know about power. How I can have power to labor and witness and persuade and influence and so on and on. And that is so fascinating. But also you must know power to say no. And power to stop. Power to put the brakes on doing things that are going to be hurtful. And God has provided some brakes. One brake is weakening the power of remaining sin by not feeding it, by mortifying it, by starving it. And that's one way, and all the time then you free yourself from temptations and you don't encourage and nurture and nourish temptations. That's, that's one way. And then there's another way also, and that is by looking unto Jesus. That's the other break. You, you cry to him for help. You look to him. You say, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against you? Help me now, Lord. Help me. And those are the two breaks that God has given to every single Christian that delivers us. We are no longer slaves to sin. And then, secondly, we are blessed slaves of righteousness. Verse 22, Paul says, you have become slaves to God. Now, I read to you that curious passage from Exodus 21 about... uh, a Hebrew who had a slave, and after a number of years, um, that slave could be freed. Um, but that slave uh, loved his master and loved his home, and his wife and children too. They loved to be there, and they uh, hated the thought of ending being a servant, a slave of so kind and loving a master. So Moses made provision, God made provision for them. You know what they were to do. Um, They were to go, the slave and his master were to go to the judges. And they were to say, uh, this man, he's he's due now for liberty. It's the seventh year and he can be free. Um, But he doesn't want to be free. He wants to stay with me. And numbers did because the life of a servant in those times was very difficult. Right? They noted down in their books of reference that this had happened. And then there was an action that he was to perform. He was to go with his servant to the doorpost. And he was to take an awl, like a sharp nail. And he was to get the servant to stand against the doorpost and put the lobe of his ear against the uh, doorpost. And he was to drill through it. He was to bore through the lobe of the ear and attach momentarily this man by his ear to the door of entry into 
his house. That was the great symbol then, that now he had the freedom to come and go. He wasn't thrown out of the house. He remained for the rest of his days a beloved servant of that house with his wife and and his children. Well, the Christian is someone now who goes to Jesus Christ and he says to Jesus Christ, I want to be your servant. I want to serve you forever and ever. I don't want anything to cause you to dismiss me from your service because in your service I find freedom. In your service I find fulfillment. So uh, join me to yourself forever and I'll keep your commandments, I'll keep your word. The God that we serve is a God who then gives us such benefits. You look at the package, the wage that he gives us, the prosperity he gives to us, the income that we have from him, a life of love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness and goodness, being adopted into the family of God, being God's heir, enjoying an inheritance that will never be taken from us. It's a package deal that God makes with us. He takes the initiative and he, he spreads it all out and he says, come unto me and this is what I'll give you. Sonship equals life and God grants to us in Christ adoption and eternal life. Sin leads to misery. Sin leads eventually to death. But grace leads to holiness and grace leads to eternal life. Grace not only leads to forgiveness, but the blessedness of of being a son of God, of every day I can look into God's loving, smiling face, And I can say, Abba, Father, and I can ask him for help, and I can thank him for all the mercies that he has given to me. A man looks at a Christian. The world looks at a Christian. It sees a man living in sexual fidelity in his marriage. And it might say, oh, think of what you're missing. Think of all the women I can have. But it's the man who is faithful who is blessed, not the rake who does whatever he wants to do. The world looks at the Christian and it says, look what you're doing with your money. The money you're giving to your church and the money you're giving to Kenya. Look what you could spend that money on. And the world doesn't see that the man who gives is added to and abounds more and more more the world says look what fun you could have on Sundays instead of being in church with those people and hearing sermons but the man who keeps a day separate a day that's special and says this day I'm not going to spend my time in working and studying and earning money and cleaning my car and doing my garden and playing golf. I'm going to think about the living God. and I'm going to give him a day. I'm going to be searched by him and tried by him. and I'm going to be encouraged 
and supported and kept by him. It's the man who is a slave of righteousness. That man is a man who knows true blessedness. It's a false freedom. If you say, I can do anything I want to. I can go any place I want to. I can live any way I want to. That, that's not freedom at all. Uh, here's the Lord Jesus, the, the, the one most free man that the world has ever seen. And that free man said that I didn't come to be served, but I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And that's what freedom shows itself in and focuses on in serving one another and serving the living God. Whoever wants to be first among you, he must become the slave of all, he said. The man who dies to selfishness is the man who lives. The man who is a slave to God is a free man. If you want to become free, you have to become a slave. Uh, You know Robert Murray McShane's uh, great prayer. He prayed, Lord, uh, make me as holy as a saved sinner can be. That's what I want in in my life. I want holiness. I I want a life that reflects you and your life. I want to spend my life serving and giving myself to you and to other people. So it's uh, every Christian's desire not only to experience the freedom that God gives but to be a slave of righteousness. And in that happy slavery, we, we find true freedom. That's what we pray for. That's what we pray for our children, that they'll find real freedom. That's what we pray for our friends, for our neighbors, for our grandchildren, our parents. There was a, a, a wonderful woman called Monica who lived in uh, North Africa um, in the uh, fourth century. And she had a brilliant son. But that son, uh, he, he went astray. Um, he lived a life of infidelity. He had muddled religious views. He cohabited with a woman. And she prayed for him. Monica kept praying. She kept bringing him to God in prayer. She never wearied of praying for her brilliant son, Augustine. She prayed not just for forgiveness for his sins, but for a transformation, for an enrichment of his life, that he would become a servant of all that is good and righteous and kind and loving. She wanted his life to be turned upside down. God answered her prayer in a remarkable way. Um, One day he was in the garden, and he was at the end of his tether, And he was sitting there, and there were children in the house next door playing in the garden. And they were playing some game. It was probably skipping. And as they were skipping, they were chanting, Take, read, take, read, tolle, legge, tolle, legge, take, read. And with every utterance of those words, it was a knock on his mind and a knock on his conscience. And he got up 
out of the chair and he went indoors and he found the Bible and he opened it here at the letter to the Romans and he began to read and life and the Lord Jesus and forgiveness and the end of service for sin it all came into his life and it flooded into his life God in mercy heard the prayers of his mother and Augustine became a a great leader in the church and showed the grace of God what it is and declared it and magnified Christ by preaching that grace. You and I who've been freed from the bondage of sin and have become servants of righteousness then are the people who pray. And we pray for our families and our friends and our churches. So, uh, freedom from sin, the end of slavery to sin, and finally, um, eternal life. And Paul makes it clear, the result is eternal life, verse 22. That's what he says. Well, Saturday afternoons, it's a great time for results, isn't it? From Hapas 4 onwards... What did your team do? How was the game? What was the result? Was it defeat and relegation? Was it victory? Was it triumph? Every Christian wants a good result. Uh, Soon, in a month's time, results will be coming through. And you'll go online or you'll be sent a letter and you'll find out how you've done. What's the result of... uh, your first year, three years of work. What's the result? Will it be a good result? There's always the result, isn't there? Here's a man and he falls in love with a girl and he asks the girl to marry him and everyone is happy. And everyone at the wedding only wishes the best for them. What will be the result of their marriage? Will it be long years of love and support for one another? Will it be children who were raised in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? Will, will it be a, a long and blessed life, a useful life in the church, in the service of God? What, what's it going to be like? What's the result going to be? And the result of God working in us, beginning a good work in us, is eternal life. The result is eternal life. Verse 22. Oh my friends. Shouldn't we. Shouldn't we be concerned. About the result of actions. That we have taken. Decisions. That we have made. Friendships that we have formed. Habits. That we have developed. In our lives. What will be the result. Of your life. What will it be in 10 years. In 20 years time what is the result of choosing Jesus Christ to be your very own Lord and Saviour the result is eternal life we say it so easily don't we we're so familiar with it it drops off our tongues the most famous verse in the Bible for God so loved the world he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. 
the last verse of John chapter 3. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life. But God's wrath remains on him. And the great words with which this chapter ends. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now what is eternal life? Well it's not a life sentence. It is not life as you know it today, as you have known it in your unbelief, going on and on and on. No improvement, no deliverance, never changing the tedium of it all. Not that. Eternal life is the life of eternity. It's a life of heaven, it's a life of God, it's a life of love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, self-control. It's the life of Christ's likeness in God's presence, his fullness of joy at his right hand. There are pleasures forevermore, it's that life. And that life is God's gift to us. Can you imagine God ever getting fed up? Can you imagine God twiddling his thumbs, wondering what to do next? Can you imagine God ever being bored, frustrated, time heavy on his hands? The life of God is 100% the love of God, 100% the peace of God, 100% the self-fulfillment of God, 100% the satisfaction and contentment and creativity, and authority, and ministry of Almighty God, so that there is, in the life of God, the eternal life, his gift, there is strength enough for you, and ability enough, and time enough to accomplish all God wants for you. And here is the future, as it lies before you, and... um, Oh, such possibilities of a a rich life, a life of kindness, a a family life, a church life, a life in your employment, a a life in your neighborhood where you are servants of the living God and love your neighbor as you love yourself. And you can do that only by the life of heaven. The eternal life, this gift that God gives you. Take it. Take it. It's being offered to you again today. Take it. Here is someone who loves you dearly. And they purchased a gift for you. And that gift is commensurate with their means. And they're very, very wealthy. And they've taken great thought and they know you. And they know how you tick. And they know what is most suitable for you. And they come and they offer you this wonderful gift. It's unimaginably glorious, this gift. It is eternal life. Eternal life. No strings attached. 
They're freely offering it to you because they love you. They know all about you. The baddest, worstest things that you've ever done in your life, things that you are most deeply ashamed of, they know all about that. And they know your greatest need is to have eternal life. And so, God has so loved the world that he's given his only son. That whoever believes in him doesn't perish but have everlasting life. And so we give to God this trust, this faith, this belief. And oh, it's imperfect. It's sometimes as frail as a cobweb. And it's mixed and it's muddled. It's not rock solid. It's not pure gold as we would want it to be. But we come and we give him our trust. Cheer I am, Lord. I'm so reluctant. I've so kept myself away from you for so long. I'm so sad about myself and how poorly I have served you. And I come and I give myself. That's my input to God. I believe. In Jesus Christ. And God's input to me then. Is eternal life. That's what he gives me. That whosoever believes in him. Does not perish but have everlasting life. And all you can say is. I'm speechless. I don't know how to thank you. It's so Wonderful. I'm so unworthy. You're so kind. I've given you my dirty heart. And you have given to me eternal life through Jesus Christ, the Lord. And that's where this Romans 6 is heading for. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. You take the gift now. Don't go away without this gift. That's why God brought you here. To give you. You. This gift. Lord do bless us now. As we gather around your word again. And we hear your diagnosis of human society. In all its slavery. To sin. All its bondage. And the death that lies before us all. And thou hast done such a wonderful thing for us. Thou hast freed us. And thou hast pardoned us our sins. Thou hast given us eternal life. Oh, how wonderful. Your grace. Help us to know something of the life of eternity this week. Uh, the life of joy and peace and Oh, the gentleness of God to make us strong. Oh, Lord, do bless your word that no one should leave tonight without having in their own hearts and lives thy gift of Jesus Christ and his life eternal. We ask in his name. Amen.